Welcome to episode 74 of the Search with Kanda podcast recorded on Friday the 14th of August 2020. My name is Mark Williams-Cook and this week I'm going to be talking to you about the big Google glitch that happened that absolutely devastated some people's rankings that we initially thought was maybe just some wild Google update. Uh, I'm going to talk about a small Google My Business update that's coming both in how we can update our GMB data and the insights we're going to be receiving. I want to talk a little bit about that big scary AI that is GPT-3 and how this might affect SEO. And we've also had some listener questions submitted that I'll do my best to answer. I'm also really proud to say this episode of Search with Canda is sponsored by Sightbulb. Hopefully uh, it's something you've heard of. Uh, so if you haven't, Sightbulb's uh, website desktop-based website auditing tool. We actually uh, interviewed one of its founders, Patrick Hathaway, uh, a few weeks ago now. It was episode 68 of this podcast. So if you want to go back and get a bit more detail about how Sightbulb came to be and some behind-the-scenes information, that's a really good place to start. A cool thing for me is it's really easy for me to tell you about Sightbulb uh, because I use it a lot. Uh, we use it in Canda, uh, in Canda Agency a lot. And there's a lot of things I like about it. Um, so especially if you're learning to do SEO or maybe if you're more senior and you're training people with SEO, it's one of my favorite tools to use. And that's because of the way it actually produces the audit report that you get out of the other end. So obviously there's lots of different types of desktop and online um, kind of auditing programs you can use. And some just give you kind of raw data, which can be helpful. Um, but the thing I particularly like about the Sightbulb reports is a couple of things. Uh, firstly, it doesn't just give you the data, it, it identifies the actual SEO issue in context and the team there have gone to great lengths to write up a really detailed explanation of why this is an issue from an SEO perspective. So if you're learning SEO, it, it, you know, it's really great because it will say, okay, we found this issue with hreflang. And if you don't know what that is, you can actually just click on details and you'll get uh, a description about that issue. But the other really cool thing is from at least a technical perspective, it will give you a priority for all of those issues and that's useful uh, wherever you sit on kind of the experience spectrum so if you're really experienced it's a good tool to run because you can just click on kind of critical and see okay these are the big things that I need to know when I speak to this client or potential client on the phone if you're learning SEO I think it's really good because it then gives you all of those issues and starts to teach you, okay, well, you know, meta descriptions are slightly too long, but that's not a, a massive issue. Um, you know, the big thing we've got is, you know, half the pages on the site are 404ing or, or something like that. Um, it certainly is helpful as well from, uh, from finding the really specific issues that can be hard to dig out of data. So one of the things I like it does is it'll give you reports on things like when you've internally linked to non-canonical pages as uh, as platforms like Shopify really like doing in their category, in their uh, collection pages. So things like that can be quite hard to spot um, and it just makes it really, really easy. So as soon as you put the URL in, it can even give you hints like, you know, uh, this site 
It seems to use AngularJS, so you might want to use the Chrome JavaScript crawler. So Sitebulb have given us uh, an offer for listeners of Search with Candor. So normally you get a 14-day free trial with Sitebulb. They've extended that to a very generous 60 days. And if you go to sitebulb.com forward slash SWC, so S for search, W for with, C for candor, you see where we're going with that, sitebulb.com forward slash SWC, you can download a 60-day trial. Uh, so nothing to lose. You don't need any credit card details. Just go there, download it, have a play. Let's start on some uh, big but short-lived news that could have been massive news, which was on the 10th of August, so four days ago, pretty much every channel that SEOs use to communicate, so I saw it on Twitter, I saw it on forums, I saw it discussed on Slack, um, were talking about an apparent massive Google update and not in a very positive way. So the search quality took an absolute plummet. Um, we had completely incorrect uh, search results. And by incorrect, I mean, you know, people searching for recipes with beans and getting completely the wrong thing, e-commerce sites vanishing, um, just really the SERPs completely turned on their head. And it was initially being reported as a possible Google algorithm update and a very very large one but it soon became apparent thankfully for many people that that wasn't the case. So uh, John Bueller jumped in very early the next day on August the 11th and said I don't have all the details yet but it seems like this was a glitch on our side and has been fixed in the meantime. Uh, if someone could fix the other 2020 issues that would also be great. Uh, and that was followed up later that same day with um, a, a tweet from the Google Webmaster Central that said, on Monday, we detected an issue with our indexing systems that affected Google search results. Once the issue was identified, it was promptly fixed by our site reliability engineers. And by now it has been mitigated. Thank you for your patience. So to give you uh, a little behind the scenes from you know our agency point of view um, we had one client that was very obviously affected by this they were based in the US and we're talking about dozens and dozens of number one number two positions going to you know not found in the top hundred anymore and when this tweet came out and said the issue has been mitigated by now. Um, our rank tracking was still showing they hadn't quite recovered. It does look like now they've made a full recovery, but it was certainly more than 24 hours uh, in that case. So if somehow you didn't catch wind of this, um, so maybe you've had some time off work and you've come back and you've seen that massive swing, you might have seen a huge dip in um, certainly I saw it on different tools like Systrix and SEMrush. Uh, it was quite visible, this, this big dip in visibility for 24 hours. It does look like it's fixed. It's really interesting for me because I think <laughs> I'm losing track now. I think this is the second time this year, maybe the third, that Google has had some big, very public 
issue with their indexing. So there was definitely two in 2019 that were very publicly kind of noticed and talked about and then fixed. Um, and I think it. I think this is the third time this year. So previously we've had again trouble with Google indexing new pages. And I believe a few episodes ago I talked about um, when Google were discussing that from their point of view, um, in terms of their crawler was overloading their indexing capability, and this was creating a big backlog, which is why end webmasters users were reporting, "Hey, look, you know, it's taking days." for us to get new pages indexed when it's normally you know minutes or hours so that that's just interesting for me from a you know from a outside observer point of view at google with this incredibly complex system of lots of little algorithms working together constantly being tweaked and Gary from uh, Google actually followed up with some nice information about caffeine their indexing system which I'll just read out so he, he tweeted this which is in relation to this issue they had the indexing system caffeine does multiple things one ingests fetch logs two renders and converts fetched data three extracts links me uh, meta and structured data four extracts and computes some signals five schedules new crawls six and builds the index that is pushed to serving if something goes wrong with most of the things that it's supposed to do, that will show downstream in some way. If scheduling goes wrong, crawling may slow down. If rendering goes wrong, we may misunderstand the pages. If index building goes bad and ranking and serving may be affected. Don't oversimplify search, for it's not simple at all. Thousands of interconnected systems working together to provide users high quality and relevant results. Throw a grain of sand in the machinery and we have an outage like today. So it, it's just really interesting seeing this point of view where Google are basically saying, yeah, look, things are super complicated. Um, this may happen you know, once in a while. And that's kind of scary, I guess, from website owners. Um, so when we spoke to our client about this, you know, they actually uh they were really really on top of it and messaged us you know almost as soon as their rankings dropped saying you know what's going on and you know we spoke to them and said you know this is this is the situation with google it's a glitch what can we do well very little actually um you know all the powers in their hands to kind of sort this mitigate it and get things back to going so i think that's particularly scary if you are reliant on organic uh, organic traffic <laughs> I caught a little bit of news about Google My Business yesterday on the official Google blog. So there's a post I will link to on the show notes at search.withcanda.co.uk, which is called Update Your Business Profile on Google Maps and Search. And I'll just read you an excerpt from this post to uh, let you know verbatim what's happening. So Google say, today we're making it easier to update your business profile directly from Google products you already use. Now you can create posts, reply to reviews, add photos and update business information right from Google search and maps. So that's pretty cool because the, you know, the Google, there's a Google My Business obviously center at the moment and there is the app. They're a little bit clunky, I feel, to, to, <laughs> to use. So this is saying we can just, you know, once we're logged in from Google, uh, just edit what we see directly. 
So it says to start, make sure you're signed in with a Google account used to verify your business. On Google Maps, simply tap your profile picture in the top right corner of the mobile app and select your business profile to access these tools. On Google Search, you can look up your business name or search for My Business to update your profile. The My Business functionality is currently available in English and will expand to other languages over the coming months. And then this was quite interesting. They said, we're also rolling out more free tools on Google Maps and Search that will help you understand how your business is performing and how you can enhance your online presence. Business owners and managers will see a revamped performance page with new customer interaction insights. This page will provide refreshed metrics on a monthly basis and will evolve over the coming months to share more helpful data to business owners. All of these features will be available on an upgraded merchant interface that will offer helpful recommendations about how you can improve your Google presence, whether it's adding new information to your business profile, responding to recent customer reviews, or using Google ads to help your business stand out. So I think there's potentially some really good insights they could start pulling into Google My Business. So if you've ever done a search, say for a local gym, you will have their an estimation of how busy that location is. And that's based on you know Google's tracking of phones and when people are going in and out. So they know roughly normally how busy it is every day and things like how long people spend in there. And I'd be really interested if they could start maybe piping some of that data through into Google My Business and giving that those insights. So at the moment we've got insights like how many times we're appearing in search, how many times people call, ask for directions, that kind of thing. Um, and obviously key phrases that um, are showing our profile. But I think, you know, especially for high street businesses, having that extra data integrated would be really helpful. Uh, but again, those, those changes are rolling out and I'll update you once I know more about the new insights when Google announces them. Over the last couple of weeks I've been looking through some recent examples of GPT-3. So if you haven't heard of GPT-3 um, or GPT-2 or GPT, GPT stands for Generative Pre-trained Transformer 3, uh, which is an auto-regressive language model that uses deep learning to produce human-like text. So if you haven't heard of GPT-3, that probably hasn't made it uh, much clearer for you what it is. Uh, essentially, it's some AI that helps predict what text comes next in many ways. Um, it's created by OpenAI uh, that's backed by Elon Musk. And it, it's caught a lot of people's imagination recently. So there was uh, GPT-2 uh, that came out before. And the, the main difference um, between... GPT-2 and 3 is essentially the amount of the quantity of data that they're using. So GPT-3 and, and this whole kind of GPT approach to natural language processing is interesting because it, using transformers, uh, which is the, the T in GPT, what they're doing is essentially processing massive amounts of text to learn some of the more just general attributes of language because this is then used as a base as a starting point 
uh, for then adding this extra detail to specific language tasks, which they call fine tuning. Um, but it basically drastically reduces the amount of labeled data that's required for specific uh, natural language tasks. And GP2 was kind of put out there so you could download it and you could play with it like on Google Collab notebooks. Um, anyone could use it and it's still out there. You can generate some really interesting stuff. Um, so you can, for instance, ask it a question and you can give it a sample or you can just give it a data set, some pages where somewhere in that um, in that information is the answer to the question and you can just ask the question and part of the technology is it will go there work out what the answer is and then use that as the um, to to construct an answer for you um, and you can also just use it to just generate um, kind of the next next thing if you like so it doesn't have to be it can do this um, this this approach that doesn't require you to tell it where the answer is it just tries to answer and there's been some impressive work done where they've they've trained these models to do things like you know like a general pub quiz and see how good its general knowledge was there's been with gpt3 so gpt3 um the they haven't released just the code how they did with GPT-2 so you can't just download it and fine-tune it yourself and all these things they've released an API there's a close there's a closed beta at the moment for the API so that's the application programming interface um, which means you can access um, the you can give some inputs and get some output from it but you can't see what's going on behind the scenes I was having a discussion with someone the other day and trying to explain um, the difference between you know them providing the source and having this API access and the best analogy me and my friend could come up with was um, if someone's providing you with the source it's like if you're trying to cook and someone gives you the instructions and they give you the recipe and all the ingredients whereas if you've got an API um, you maybe just pass the ingredients through the window you can't see into the kitchen and then they prepare the meal and you just get what comes out the other side and you don't really know what process went into to making that meal or what spices they've added uh, so that was the best analogy maybe someone can give me a better one we kind of came up with it on the spot but I liked it and the reason they've done this OpenAI have done this and only provided this um, API is they have concerns actually because the performance of GPT-3 is so impressive they're worried about how it might be abused and they're not even quite sure about how people could abuse it but there's definitely some interesting thought cases about um, things that could be done that might be harmful you know so I could maybe start generating pages with medical advice that sound very convincing to the layman for instance through through this um, so by providing an API it gives them a way to monitor what people are using it for if they think someone's um, doing something that they don't agree with they can just cut off their API access and limit um, limit that damage um, that said there's been some really cool examples so the people that have got access um, so I saw a tweet from uh, Sharif Shamim who said, wow, I built a React Dice component with GPT-3. This feels far uh, far much more fun than writing uh, JSX. So what, what he's actually used is there's a site where it says describe your app 
and he just types in what he would like that app to do. So in this case, he's just typed in a box, a button that says roll dice and then displays its value and he hits generate and GBT3 has then um, understood what the functionality is of that and it's literally written the code for him and given uh, a button that you click and then it's showing you what the uh, what the dice roll is on a one to six and I've seen a couple of examples of that where people have um, have used explanations of what they'd like to see so I saw one for a website as well where someone just described what they wanted a website to look like and then it and then uh, it just went off and built it um, Kevin Lacker uh, gave GPT-3 a Turing test. So again, I'll link to all of these examples in the show notes at search.withcanada.co.uk. And I'll just read out to you um, this, uh, this, this test that he gave GPT-3. So he said, so he's tried some common sense tests because traditionally artificial intelligence struggles with quote unquote common sense. But GPT-3 can answer a lot of common sense questions. So this is the question he posed. Uh, what is your favorite animal? And then this is the answers that GPT-3 gave. My favorite animal is a dog. And then he says, why? And then GPT-3 answers, because dogs are loyal and friendly. Very, very good answers to why you might like a dog. That's fully believable. That would be a human. So then um, he asks, so Kevin asks, what are two reasons that a dog might be in a bad mood? Uh, and GPT-3 answers, two reasons that a dog might be in a bad mood are if it is hungry or if it is hot. Um, and that, I found that super impressive myself, uh, that answer. Um, and then Kevin says, how many eyes does a giraffe have? GPT-3 says, a giraffe has two eyes. How many legs does a frog have? A frog has four legs. Are there any, uh, are there any animals with three legs? And GPT-3 answers, no, there are no animals with three legs. I guess that's kind of true. Maybe there are animals with three legs due to injury, but um, I don't think there's any born with three legs uh, or uh, regularly at least. And then he says, why don't animals have three legs? And GPT-3 answers, animals don't have three legs because they would fall over. Um, so, I mean, to me, that's immensely impressive, um, the answers it's managed to to generate here. And it's a huge leap from... GPT-2 and, and other models. Now, you can read Kevin's blog post because he's given a whole series of questions um, and a lot of them are very impressive. He does manage to um, find ways to get GPT-3 to fail the Turing test. So he starts asking, uh, how do you sporgle a morgul? And GPT-3 confidently answers, you sporgle a morgul by using a sporgle. Um, <laughs> another question is like how many rainbows does it take to jump from Hawaii to 17 and GPT-3 confidently answers it takes two rainbows to jump from Hawaii to 17 um, and Kevin says which colorless green ideas sleep furiously and GPT-3 answers ideas that are colorless green and sleep furiously are the ideas of a sleep furiously so obviously we've gone into the realm of nonsense here and I guess this is, you know, um, while it's made these really clever connections, it can't stop and say, hang on, that question is ridiculous. It doesn't make sense. It's always going to have a go at answering them. Um, so it would fail the Turing test on these kinds of questions, but still massively, uh, massively impressive. 
Um, there's some other examples as well. So I found one by uh, Paris Chopra who has made a fully functioning search engine on top of GPT-3. So basically he's made the, uh, like it looks like a layer on top of Wikipedia. So you can just ask his search engine things like who killed Mahatma Gandhi? and it will immediately just answer the question for you and give you a link to where it found the answer or how many carbon atoms are there in benzene and it just immediately comes back with there are six. So again, this is really um, interesting. I think in terms of things like chatbots as well, so you can just give them this library of information to to use and then they it can pull out the answers that it needs much like a, a human uh, would. Of course, there are downsides um, and there are uh, problems with this kind of technology. So I was reading through a paper on GPT-3 uh, last week, um, which I again, I'll link to in the show notes. And it just talks about various aspects of um, GPT-3. And the section I found particularly interesting was on biases um, that are present in the training data that may lead models to gener uh, generate stereotyped or prejudiced content. So this is an excerpt from this paper um, where they were sort of analyzing and looking through GPT-3 and um, doing various tests. So they said, co-occurrence of male slash female descriptive words in data. Females were more often described using appearance oriented words such as beautiful and gorgeous uh, when compared to men. and in their investigation, they looked at gender bias in GPT-3. So they so um, they focused on associations between gender and occupation. And they said, we found that occupations in general have a higher probability of being followed by a male gender identifier than a female one. In other words, they're male leaning. When given context such as the insert occupation was a, 83% of the 388 occupations we tested were more likely to be followed by a male identifier by GPT-3. We measured this by feeding the model a context such as the detective was A and then looking at the probability that the model following up uh, with a male indicating words, e.g. man, male, etc. or female indicating words, woman, female, etc. In particular, occupations demonstrating higher levels of education, such as legislator, banker, or professional, were heavily uh, male-leaning, along with occupations that require hard physical labor, such as mason, millwright, and sheriff. Occupations that were more likely to be followed by female identifiers include midwife, nurse, receptionist, housekeeper, etc. So there's obviously problems that, you know, we don't want to train uh, machines to generate content like this and essentially continue this perpetual cycle uh, because it's a two-way it's a two-way thing without going into it too deeply obviously people are learning from what they read and then regurgitating more of what they learn and then that's just going to this big feedback loop so it'll be interesting to see um, how issues like this are tackled I think this is actually something we're going to dig into in a, in a we'll have a whole episode on GPT-3 um, because it, I think it is now coming to a time realistically where we need to think about how this might affect digital marketing, how it will affect content online and how we view it, how we trust it and what we do in terms of marketing. Um, John Mueller from Google did say that 
they may in the future have to get more granular with Google's own guidelines on automatically generated content. So at the moment, um, the Google guidelines are a little bit vague, but generally it's saying we don't want you to generate um, automated content, especially if it's kind of low value. But, you know, whether if the content is genuinely helpful and genuinely good and correct, you know, does it matter if a human wrote it at the end of the day? So that's something I would just want to talk about um, in more detail, we'll have, a, I think, a whole episode of that. We'll get someone on and, and we'll talk about that because I think it's a really interesting area to explore in terms of the opportunities, the limitations of that technology and what it would mean for people that adopted it and for those that didn't. Um, I've seen other people in the SEO industry, such as Will Critchlow, talking about, um, you know, it, it is time now to look at, for instance, using this technology to do things like write product descriptions so things that maybe don't take a huge amount of creativity when you're doing them at scale to just do them quickly and efficiently and have them correct. Um, so yeah, we'll we'll explore that in another episode. Uh, I just wanted to give you an introduction to GPT-3 if you haven't heard about it and check out the links in the show notes if you want to know a little bit more. We'll finish up on some listener Q&A. So some of you kindly submitted some uh, non-site specific SEO questions as I had requested as I don't particularly want to get too much into the nuts and bolts of individual websites. I'd much rather answer, um, you know, questions that might help everybody. So I've just taken three here. We had several more. So sorry if I didn't answer uh, your question. Um, it might have been too difficult for me. You never know. Um, but I'll try and get through them in the next few episodes as well. So the first one is from Iris Grossman, who said, let's say there is a site that has UGC, so user generated content, and it offers those users the possibility to download a generated code to embed a snippet on their website, for example, a book now button with some text, linking towards the pages, uh, linking towards the pages they have with the content they have created. Would this be considered a link scheme? And should the links be no followed? So that's a that's a really good question. So Google has a uh, a, a whole page about link schemes in their Google Webmaster guidelines, and they have um, they have a definition of of this kind of widget thing. So they what they say to avoid is keyword rich, hidden or low quality links embedded in widgets that are distributed across various sites. For example, and then it has one of the examples for you know visitors to this page one thousand four hundred seventy two, and then it's just got a link to car insurance underneath that. So that makes sense. So, and that's definitely something we've seen um, some actually very well-known big websites get penalties for, which was dishing out these embeddable widgets and then kind of sticking a link in. I think the important thing is whether the link is being is the thing they want to place. So, if you're saying, look, um, these people want to link back, so they want to create a book now button to link to our website and we're just giving them code to do that, then I think that's fine because that's an editorially placed link. Um, if you didn't generate that code for them, they still want to make a link, right? So they're still just going to have to work out how to code it themselves. So if that was me, I personally don't see why you would need to no-follow those links. 
If, however, you were generating this widget where the reason someone wanted it, you know, to use Google's example was, I want this widget because it shows how many visitors this page has had or something like that. And then you put a link in there. That link hasn't been placed editorially. That link has been placed because you've kind of crowbarred it in there. You forced them to have it. That's not the reason why they've got that widget. So I think it's just important to think about, one, the intent of that. So if if the editorial intent is, well, they want the link, then I don't see any harm in making a widget to do that for them. Um, and the only other thing I'd consider is even if that was the intent, you know, if you're going to, you know, distribute it to 5,000 sites, then that's going to probably raise some uh, algorithmic eyebrows. Um, if it's, you know, a few websites and, you know, you're, you're offering that, I wouldn't see a problem with it, no. Uh, the second question we have is from Ramesh Singh. A uh, very short question, which is, does branding improve organic rankings? Which is a very cool question. Um, so I think there's a few things to consider here. Um, and I, I just want to separate it immediately because I've seen in these conversations, people start talking about things like exact match domains. Um, so we talked about them before, you know, exact match domains still work. And the reason I think they still work is twofold, mainly because um, when you're searching for something that someone say has the exact.com for, Google has to or can't rule out the possibility that the intent behind your search is navigational, meaning you're not searching generically for those words, you're just searching for that website because that's one thing people do use Google for. They just type in the name of websites and that they want to go to uh, or in their Omnibox uh, in their browser. Um, and the other reason is any anchor text that you do earn uh, naturally, i.e. it doesn't have a different type of anchor text, is just going to be those words as well. So separating that, I think the general move Google is making is they're moving away from kind of this link graph approach and more into this knowledge graph based approach, which is understanding what things are and what the relationship between things are. And certainly, I think having Google understand that this is the name of our organization and Google seeing that lots of people are talking about you and you're well known and you're linked to will improve rankings. So I think it's very hard to separate the how well is my brand known and what is my brand known for to what part is contributed from the link graph and what part is contributed through people just knowing us. You can even see when you look through Google's own advice on things like the um, Google My Business and local rankings, they talk about things like how well your company is known and if it's a well-known entity, well, a well-known company. So, you know, if you're doing, in my opinion, if you're doing quote-unquote good SEO and good outreach, you know, there's no way of building, say, links or getting people to talk about you and link to you without improving your branding. So I guess it, it, it means how we're defining branding, you know, and if if I define it, I define brand now, a lot of it as what other people are saying about your company or your organization. And that's naturally, a lot of that's going to appear on the web and it's going to be in links as well. Um, so there is a, a big overlap there. You know, there is the other aspects to branding, you know, there's visual aspects, there's kind of sentiment aspects, um, which I think will get there with them. I don't think they're big ranking factors at the moment, but the answer is I, I think yes, in a, in a, 
in a maybe not direct sense, but that's one of the things I think Google and search engines are trying to measure, which is how well known, how popular, how trusted you are, which are all things you relate to having a good brand. And our last question is from Afiz Adebayo. And Afiz asks, if the pages that generate the most backlinks to your site are UGC, so user-generated content, which you don't have power over, assuming those UGC pages are, say there's, he's saying there's like half a million of them, 500,000, and only 100 of them account for 90% of your site backlink profile, the rest are worthless to search engines. What would you do to avoid crawl budget issues in this case? Wow, that's a horrible, <laughs> horrible question. Um, I'm very tempted to just go down the it depends route um, because obviously it will it will depend on all sorts of things. Um, I mean, I can only imagine it's some kind of forum or Q&A site that you've got so many pages and I guess I'd be asking questions about like, why is it then that such a high percentage of pages are worthless to search engines? Does that mean, because if it's worthless to search engines, that to me normally means it's worthless to users as well. So if we just follow that logic that 400 and, 499,900 of these pages are pretty much worthless to users and search engines, we're saying we don't want them to appear in search. So we're not bothered about them being crawled basically. Um, so how I would solve that is assuming that we've got such a tiny amount of these pages that we're saying are really important, so 100, um, and we the other thing we know is yes, that sending Google or whoever off to crawl half a million pages we don't care about is a massive waste of time and we don't want them to appear in search anyway, is that because it's a nice small number, I would actually lift the links to those 100 pages out of whatever link architecture already exists and put them on another page that's easily accessible because obviously it's good content you said so you want people to find it um so you make those uh make a page it might be if it is say like a forum it might be like featured posts or something like that or popular posts whatever it is that links to these um so that google can find them outside of that um, you can then just use robots.txt or if they're already indexed and you want them out, you need to use no index first and wait till they drop out and then put robots in place. But basically block off the usual crawling path channel to that half a million pages. Um, and the other pages will still be accessible um, in their entirety because we're going to link directly to them and make sure that robots are allowed directly to those pages. Um, but that's the rough approach I'd take given the information we've got there, which is we have half a million pages we don't want people to see. So obviously we must block them because that's a large amount of pages to waste uh, crawler resource on. We've got 100 that we want to keep. So it makes sense just to pull those links out of that architecture because that's a manageable amount. Um, and then you're still going to get the benefit from the links from them. People are still going to find that content that's helpful. And then maybe review why you've got that big issue in the first place. So that's everything we've got time for in this episode. We're going to be back, or I will be back, 
Um, well, actually, no, I'm going to be back with a guest because I'm going to find someone to talk to me about GPT-3 uh, next week. So that will be on Monday, the 24th of August. I have another couple of guests actually lined up. Um, so really excited for the next few episodes over August and September. Uh, I won't tell you who they are just yet, but um, some really cool people we're going to be hearing from. As usual, if you're enjoying things, please do subscribe, tell a friend, uh, give us a do follow link. Um, all appreciated and I hope you all have a brilliant week.